cast. Um, just as an interesting thing, I noticed that uh, the last several weeks we've had as many as 35, 36 views of our Sunday morning uh, video. So that's almost a half as many as people are here are seeing it throughout the week. And I, I heard that my sister who works in a prison ministry, has, she's been sharing the link to the YouTube channel. And then also um, Paul Elgersma, Inglesma, Ingles? Inglesma, the man who used to come before COVID, but now we can't pick him up. Um, uh, Eric Overig told me that he contacted him and that the home where he lives in was tuning in to Andy Stanley, and so now they're going to try us for a while. So I don't know if we're going to be able to beat Charles Stanley or whatever, but we but at least it would be people we knew. So it was kind of neat if today was the first time that Eric got to read the scripture for us too. So, All right, so what we are doing is working through some hard sayings of the Bible, and this one it sort of piggybacks on one of the first ones we did. But, um, oh, Joe, the battery's dead. Just kidding. I don't have one in my pocket, though. That was a pretty smooth move, I'd have to say. While the Pharisees were gathered together, so this was just after they've tried to trap Jesus. So in their, they've asked him, uh, the first question was, if there's a resurrection, whose wife will she be? The lady who married seven brothers, remember that whole story? And so that was, a, they were trying to trap Jesus. And then there was another question, which was the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered that one. And so this this is part of the narrative in Matthew, and it's recorded in Mark and Luke as well, where they're um, trying to catch Jesus in his words, and he comes back with this hard question for them, and as you'll see, it silences the critics. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. So that was like a low-hanging fruit, right? That's the easy answer. He said to them, well, then how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and then he quotes from a psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That, uh, that first Lord, well, this is the, in, the New Testament. This is the New Testament, right? And so we don't have Yahweh, but in Hebrew, if you go back to that psalm, that first one, if you quote the psalm, that, that's Yahweh. So Yahweh said to my Lord. So Yahweh said to my Adonai, my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, or put your enemies under your feet. And so then Jesus says, if then David calls him Adonai, how can he be his son? How could David call his own descendant his master, his Adonai? And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So you understand the dilemma for them, right? Here they have this view of the Messiah, the Messianic person, and they know that he's a descendant of David, but they also know that David ascribes to this descendant of his lordship, Adonai. 
And so what's the, what's the answer for that one? What would you have said if you could time travel? What would you say? How would you answer Jesus? On that? It's not very hard, right? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the, the star, star rising. Okay. Yeah. But the, the, the point is that um, it's messing with their minds that David would ascribe this level of respect to the Messiah, to the descendant, and the answer ultimately is, how could David regard his descendant as his Lord? It's because his descendant is divine, right? He has a human nature from the line of David, so Romans tells us as to his human ancestor, he's a descendant of David, but he's declared with power through the spirit to be the son of God. Uh, first and foremost, according to Romans 1, by his resurrection from the dead. And so this is that whole thing that is a, a poser for the Jew, especially, and we're not so uncomfortable with it because it's, we're Trinitarian already. We've kind of gotten there. And so remember our first hard question was, how did Jesus not know the hour of his own return? And we realized that that was as to his human nature, he didn't know, but his divine nature. And so we got into all of that whole complexity of the, the two natures and the one person. And so I wanted to revisit the Trinity a little bit, but I also wanted you to see that for those in Jesus's day, the idea of a Trinity was kind of um, not on the table, right? They, we see it in the Old Testament now, but not, it wasn't very obvious to them at all. And it's a, a difficult, and that's because of verses like Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, that capital L-O-D, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one, right? That's the, that's the monotheistic statement. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so uh, Judaism is monotheistic, right? This is a really distinctive characteristic in light of the fact that all the nations around them were polytheistic, right? They had many gods. The Egyptians had many gods and Baal worship and all that. And so God is one, and so that's really important. And so the idea to a Jew in particular that a man would be God is really blasphemous on multiple levels because it would be polytheistic potentially in their thinking and it would be really difficult. And so that was the poser. Now, the other reason that this is a difficult saying in a way that I want us to focus on is partly because the Bible never says in a specific way that there's a trinity. So it's sort of just assumed in so many passages, but there's not really, it's kind of what I'm trying to say is it's a difficult saying because there is no saying in particular, right? There's not a, an actual text, but you have these cases like this here in Jesus's baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God I've changed the color, right, to see that's one member of the Trinity, descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven, who's that, right, that's the Father, and we know it's the Father because of the next words this person says, this is my son, 
whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And so here's a case where without any embarrassment or extra explanation, the gospel writer just talks about the Spirit and the Father and the Son and just assumes that we all kind of know what's going on. And there's, so there's not, a verse, there's not a verse anywhere that says explicitly God is one and three. It's just the Bible says there is one God, and the Bible assumes many places and illustrates for us the Trinity. There's a lot of verses like that. There's the, um, I think Titus starts with three references, or Peter starts with a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so, so there's a lot of cases like that. Can you think of any other uh, Trinitarian passages in the Bible that, what are some passages that assume or illustrate the presence of um, Okay, so in the instructions at the end of Matthew, he says, I go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why would you do that if there weren't three persons to reference? Let me, let me get you the microphone so that Gene can hear you. We at least see two members at creation, God who creates and then the Spirit who hovers over the waters. Yeah, and you could even say, let us make man in our own image. And the, it's interesting that the word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God is Elohim. But the word for God is actually El, if you want to say God. Elohim is a plural version of El. And so the early monotheistic Jews interpreted that as he is manifold in glories. And so they interpret the pluralization of Elohim, of El, into Elohim. They interpreted that as magnification, not multiplicity. And yet we can now see that the let us make man in our image is a deliberate pluralization. What other texts help you with the, the Trinity? I'll just stay back there, Joe. <laughs> I don't have much, anything that comes to mind of the three altogether, but in especially the book of John, Jesus often talks about the Father. The Father and I are one. Um, the Father's given them to me. They're still in his hand. And then he also talks 14, 15, 16, 17, or something like that. When I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. And so the Son describes relationally the Father and the Spirit but in separate instances. Yeah, so what I think Joel is pointing out is that the deity of Jesus is a really big foundational um, block upon which the rest of the Trinity is built. If Jesus is God, then we've already got God and the Father. And so the, the leap to accept the Spirit as a person is not a very big leap once you've already got Jesus as God. And John is replete and full of references to Jesus claiming to be God. I am, I am. And, you know, he uses the I am quite a few times. The Jews rise up to stone him numerous times because they knew exactly what he was claiming, who he was claiming to be. They even said, you're claiming yourself to make yourself equal with God. And so in, in even Jesus' use of the term son of man, he refers to himself as son of man, is a, is a reference to Daniel 7, so God's high exalted one. 
And so Jesus is not embarrassed to say, I am the Father of one. And John certainly writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the exact representation of his being. He's higher than the angels. Um, by him all things were created in Colossians. So there's all kinds of teachings on the deity of Jesus. So that's a big step for sure. Any other examples that you thought of, Donna? Again, there aren't a lot where you see or hear the three of them, but in Acts where Ananias and Sapphira lied about the piece of property that they sold, one verse, I think it's three, says, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then a couple verses down, he says, what makes you think of doing such a thing? You have lied, not, not lied to men, but to God. So in those verses, it, equal, it, it makes the Holy Spirit and God the same. Yeah, very good. Marie? I was reading um, just a little while ago about benedictions of uh, the Apostle Paul in his letters, and I just found this one at the end of Second uh, Corinthians. It says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And he does that several times in his benediction. Good, yeah, so Paul's um, prayers include all, the reference to all three of those, yeah. I think in Thessalonians he talks about the faith produced by the, the Spirit, and, the, and there's three references in the early part of First Thessalonians too. All right, so we have, so we're, I, I guess I'm not um, particularly concerned that we've established the fact that we believe in un, that there is a Trinity, Right. So the question I wanted us to deal with the rest of the evening is to make sure we understand um, how to express this precisely and correctly and how to um, be blessed by it. It's really a blessed truth. It's not just a convenient truth to explain away some funny verses. There's something foundationally wonderful about the fact that God is a triune person, a triune being. I just said it wrong. He's a triune being with three persons. And so one of the things that we kind of want to do is watch out for our language to not say things that are contradictory. For example, to say that God is one God and three gods, that statement that I just made is a contradictory statement because you can't be logically you can't be one god and three gods at the same time because you would have to change the definition of the word god in order to do that in other words they're not it would be a contradiction because it's not using god in the same way and in the same relationship so it would be wrong for us to say that there are three gods there's one god so then what are there three of and that's the precise way to say it is three persons so there's one being, one essence, one um, uncreated, self-existent being. <clears throat> but that being exists in a way that manifests itself as three persons. 
And so there's a similar kind of precision language. Jesus is one person with two natures, right? He's not two persons. He's one person, but he has a divine nature and a um, human nature. And so these are precise, you know, these are precise terms to avoid uh, contradictions. It doesn't necessarily make it any easier to understand, but it is a, it's, a, it's a mystery. Some of the examples, have you ever heard, what are some illustrations of the Trinity that you've heard of, uh, ways of trying to model the Trinity? There's a really fun cartoon, um, a St. Patrick one, but the, an egg, right? So one of the examples is an egg. It's one egg, but there's three parts. There's the shell, the white, and the yolk, right? Those are the three parts. That's not a very good picture of the Trinity because it implies parts. And that's modalism, Patrick, and so according to the cartoon. But the, the point is, is that it's not that one part of God is the Son, and one part of the God is the Spirit, and one part is the Father. It's they're all God. There's three persons. And so parts is not the same. It, that's too distinctive. It's too modal. It's the, what's that? Water, right? Ice, steam, and liquid water, right? Three states. That's another heresy, actually, because that one is that God manifests itself in different phases or states at different times. And it, it, it fails to, uh, it understates the mysterious nature of the fact that um, the Holy Spirit is not just one manifestation of God for a little while and then he morphs and changes into a different manifestation. The Holy Spirit is always God all the time and never ceases to exist, as does the Son, as does the Father. So, a human being? Okay. Okay, so what Larry said is that Larry is a son, a father, and a man. So he has three truth statements about him that are defined. And it would be illogical, it would be irrational for, for Larry to say he is the son of his father and the father of his son, right? That would be a contradiction because he would be uh, referring to the same person, your father, in a different relationship and saying that those were equal. But the fact that you have a son makes you, um, makes that your statement not illogical. You can be a father and you can be a son at the same time. And you have another title that you're be a man. Those are um, just truth statements that are, um, that doesn't make you three persons. Those are three roles that you play in the world. Those are three hats that you wear. But uh, that's, it would not be accurate to say that Jesus is the Father. But it is accurate to say that Jesus is God. And it is accurate to say that the Father is God, but it would be inaccurate to say that the Father is the Son. So there's a different, there's a, yeah, it's a different crossover. But I like what you're saying. Another version of what I got close to in my own thing is, am I, are you a trinity? Are you as a person, a Trinitarian person? Some people would argue that you are, right? They're, they're, some would say that your mind, 
there's body, there's uh, mind, will, and emotions. Sometimes people say that a human being is made up of those three things. Um, I would argue against, but that's not as big a deal. But I, I, am a, I am a body and a soul at the same time. So I am me. This is my house I live in, and it's uh, aging. But I'm still separate from it. And if you cut my finger off, we, me, the both of us, my house and me, um, we hurt, but I'm not diminished. I'm still a person. So I didn't, I didn't, my body is broken, but my, but I'm not two persons. I'm two, there's two aspects to me. I'm body and soul, but I'm, so I'm not the same as God. I tried to figure that out. And we're made in his image, but we're not, I could, I don't know what the third thing would be if I was Trinitarian, right? I'm body and soul. Spirit, okay, body, soul, and spirit. Well, yeah, personality, personness, spirit. That would, uh, what is the distinction between my spirit and my personality? I'm not sure. that There's a verse in the Bible, Hebrews 4, that says the word of God is quick and powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can divide even between soul and spirit. So the fact that, that uh, the Hebrews writer uses that phrase um, is interesting. I'm not sure it's conclusively teaching that there's two parts to me. I would rather interpret that for a host of other reasons, but I'd rather interpret that as he gets right down into your insides. You know, that's the main point. It's not trying to teach us something anthropological. But So I don't know if we really reflect God that way, but I, I do know that I'm not three persons. I'm one person. And so God is, God is, the Trinity is foundational. He's one being and three persons. So let's get, let's get past the confusing part and let's talk about why this is such a blessing. Uh, what, how would you, what would be some of the bullet points you would put? Why is this so cool? Why is this so important? What are some of the most important reasons that we or benefits, or blessings, I should say, of, of realizing that God is a trinity. What are some of the coolest implications of that? Marie. Well, number one, he's a perfect father. Um, when I think of the triune God, I think of God, um, above all, uh, spirit, and uh, at his right hand is Jesus, his son incarnate uh, in his resurrected body. And my, the perfect Savior, God himself, saved me. And uh, the Holy Spirit indwells because when Jesus ascended, then to those that believe, he gives the Holy Spirit and that he's a comforter. It's like packed with tremendous riches and help to us. Well, 
Why, why three? Mm-hmm. But they're, they're so um, at peace with one another, in agreement with one another, that it's like a tremendously strong God. Yeah, I, I agree with this. It's especially encouraging to know that the Father loves us, but also that Jesus is a perfect Savior and that the Spirit perfectly indwells and is enabled. So their, their roles are manifold, but a very um, sophisticated person like God could be all those things with one person in, th in theory. And so I was trying to press what is the particular blessing of the truth that they are Trinitarian. And that's one of the things you answered was that they, um, they're at peace. They, they cooperate together. And so the Godhead, if that was a way to think of it, the Godhead loves me, not just one of them. Jesus didn't twist the Father's arm and make him love me. The Father loves me too. And the Spirit cares about me the same way. So there, there's a real blessing in knowing that this. What other things that you would explicitly say are the blessings of or the beauty of the truth of the Trinity? What would you put on that list? I got a, I got a quizzical mind there, a, a good idea coming. Okay, totally as an aside, when I was in high school and youth group, I would often have a look on my face that would appear as if I was going to say something deep. And my youth pastor said, Joel, you look like you have something that you want to say, but you always say something stupid. So, I know, I know. Um, it's sort of touched on a little bit with what Marie said and your clarification of what she said. Um, but I, one of the things I appreciate about the Trinity as a, as a unit is... I think it's a perfect example of um, power in mutual submission to one another and in mutual submission to each other's um, role and purpose. And so um, the Father, the person of the Father has a specific role to play. The person of the Son has a specific role to play. The person of the Holy Spirit has a specific role to play. And one of the heresies would say that each existed solely by themselves at a particular point in time, and then the next one came along and then did their role. And yet that's not what we see. We see at Jesus' baptism as the three of them existing together in one, beautifully submitting to one another. And I, I think we see that at least between the Son and the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done, Jesus says to the Father. And I don't think that there's any other example that we could point to and see an entity or a being or an organization or structure with considerable power and yet being perfectly demonstrated in meekness and submission to the entities within it. So I think that's a really good way of saying it. That is a very, very profound and beautiful thing. That at the core of all of existence, right, God is the source of everything that is. And the being from whom everything comes, because we are all created, he is not, right? So, he's, so the uncreated reality of God is foundationally and completely relational. He was not alone. Yes, right. 
Exactly. So Joel just quoted from John, First uh, John, that God is love. You see, if God was alone, he would have wanted to love, maybe, but he had to have an object of his love. And so he needed to create in order to have someone to love. But that's not true. He already is love. It is, the, it is a foundational, primal, um, core characteristic of the Godhead that he, those three persons, are love. They know what it's like to submit for the sake and the benefit of the other and never extend their own glory. They know how to glorify each other in total joy, right? They, they're never jealous of one another. They're never envious. They never hurt one another. They never contradict. They are totally unified in their goals and ambitions and desires, and they're totally satisfied in one. God loves within the Godhead. That is where it came from. This is not an invention that came after the creation. It's where, so you could argue that the reason God created everything was certainly not because he needed fellowship, because he had that already. He didn't need glory, because he had that already. Why would God, I think, I think you're left, we don't know. Right? God did it out of his own joy. But I think a good way to think of it is that God created us all to enjoy the party. He wants us to know what it, he wanted to give creatures the thrill of knowing what he already fully knows. And that is being in a relationship that is 100% pure and mutually beneficial. That's a pretty interesting. So, so the idea of submitting yourself to another person out of love is not a new thing that came in the Bible or even in the New Testament. This is the foundation of all reality. And so when we do, we're, we're doing our, we are doing more to glorify God than any other thing because we're being just like he wanted us to be, like he already is. Do you follow what I'm saying? So that's really a really cool blessing to understand that. You see, one of the reasons I struggle with knowing and accepting how much God loves me is that I have a puny view of love itself because I only can measure it by, or I'm prone to measure it by my own ability to love. And I recognize within myself that as much as I think of that I love a person, I know how tenable or fragile it is and how distractible it is and how feeble I am. And so when I project my view of love onto what God's love for me is, it's pretty easy for me to see him as loving me conditionally, loving me if my performance is good, loving me if everything's going great, right? But if I understand his definition of love, that's the kind of love that I is way bigger than my kind of love or my understanding of love. And so it's really weirdly true that God loves me in the same way. So when Jesus in John 17, John 16 says, 
I want you to realize that the Father loves you just as much as he loves me. Can you believe what that's saying? You know, that the creator would love a creature like the creator loves himself? Pretty amazing. Any other Trinitarian uh, glories, Donna? I think it is just a reminder of the mystery of who God is himself, that he's above and beyond our human comprehension. And as, as people, especially in the day we, we live, we want to be able to reduce everything to, to a science, to a graph, to a picture, to some kind of definition. And God just doesn't fit. And, and we, we know him and we learn more. And the more we know, sometimes it's like the less you know. It's almost like starting out at the, the shore and you learn and you learn and all of a sudden you're under you're underwater you're over, the water's over your head because it's too deep and and so many other things about God show us that he's incomprehensible he's just way above and beyond how could he be everywhere all at once because we can't and there's just so many things and I think this is one of them to, to just marvel at God and learn all we can learn. But at some point, just let it go and say, okay, God, that's as far as I understand. And it helps to remember, too, that then this God who's incomprehensible is also powerful. If he's as complicated as, as he is, he can do anything. And whatever it is we need or want, he's able to do that. It, it assures us that he is big enough to handle whatever. Yeah, so I think what I'm hearing you say, Donna, is you know, God is so transcendent that it blows our minds. Right? We just It's beyond us, and we get forever to try to figure him out or get to know him better. But it is especially beautiful then when we see that he, look at what it was when he became a little baby and became fragile, or apparently fragile, right? When he humbled himself and took on flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus, and that that same Lord Jesus would make it easy for us to come to him and that he would extend himself into our lives through the spirit of Jesus, which is another word for the Holy Spirit, that he would choose to be close to us. And so this incomprehensible triune God has also a lot of very intimate involvement in my life, right? That the Father set his love on me his, the son paid for my sin, and, and while the son is limited in time and space because he chose to be in a body now, he gives us his spirit, which is not limited. And so every one of us participates in the very same spirit that descended on Jesus like a dove. And so we have God as our friend in our hearts. I think that's another neat way to think of it is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are really, really good friends. And they're in us. And so he's our friend. So that's a cool blessing. Any other Trinitarian blessings you can think of? I had a couple of things that I'll just put up here in the last few minutes. Um, one of them is I like is it explains the universe. If you... Um, if... If God were of one substance only, then it would be not possible 
to logically explain the diversity that occurs in the created realm. Why would there be so many different kinds of species and fish and planets? But if God were, were um, polytheistic, why would there be so much unity in the entire universe? And so this is the a philosophical question that goes way back. What is the universe? How do you unite the diverse, right? That's where that term comes. What is the common thing that binds all of the diversity together? And the fact that God himself is both unit, unified, and diversity, right? He's one being, three persons. It's no surprise that his created realm would be unified and diverse. And so uh, I remember this was especially uh, comforting to um, the 80s uh, philosopher that I like who wrote... Francis Schaeffer, thank you. He said that in his discovery of this, it answered such a big question for him because uh, the other worldviews couldn't deal. Why could the, the other worldview, other worldviews could not explain the universe being both unified and diverse? Um, the thing we mentioned already, love is the most important. Is makes a lot of sense, right? Another thing that I've heard before is that servanthood is primary. When you serve another person, you're doing what God does because he does that. He serves himself within he, the members of the Trinity. Um, it's good to balance your doctrine, right? If you become too, <clears throat> too much of anything, it would be like the Trinity becoming too much the Father or too much the Son. So there's, it's a picture of how to be balanced, maybe. That's an interesting thought. And then the other thought of what that this this kind of love leads to the go statements of the Bible, right? So when God says go into all the world and make disciples, it's because there's something to share. There's something to go. Why God I would go all the way back to perhaps the reason God created everything was to share the party, to spread the joy, to have other people, to have other persons that he would create get to rejoice in the coolness of loving, trusting, perfect relationships. And so there's, a, there's an impetus. God wants to share. And so that's why we go into the world to share the gospel. All right? Any other thoughts that any of those spring? I, those are not original to me. I owe other scholars, but those are some things. So any final closing thoughts or anything? I hope that was interesting to you. I, I want you to not be embarrassed about the Trinity, and I want you to not view it as sort of a, a secondary or ancillary doctrine. It's really kind of primary. It's really the core of the person and nature of God, and, and it therefore informs us on the person and nature that we are. Being created in his image, we are made to be relational. We are made to respond, and we can love him and love other people in the way that he loves within the trinity he's the model so god is love father in heaven thank you for revealing yourself thank you holy spirit for your role in creation for your role in in descending on the lord jesus and helping the human nature of jesus fulfill all righteousness and in helping him live a perfect human life.
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for breathing your life into me and making me born again and saving me. The John 3 talks about your, you go back and forth wherever you want, and unless I'm born again, I can't enter the kingdom. And so you made me born again. And thank you, Spirit, for your work of conviction right now and in my life and how you teach me the ways of Jesus and you lead me and want me to um, uh, be comforted and counseled by your word. Thank you for opening your word to me and helping me understand it. And Lord Jesus, thank you as the second member of the Trinity for, for choosing to humble yourself and to take on the form of a human being. You entered into time and space. You limited yourself. You, you, um, you made yourself vulnerable unto death, even death on the cross. You bore my sins and my pains on the cross. And, and you did that for me, and you are worthy. You are worthy for that great work that you did. And Father, thank you for loving me so much that you would send your son that you not only created me, but you sent your son to redeem me and purchase me back. And so for each one of us who trust you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you and we ask that you would so fill our lives that we are full of the love that you have. In Jesus' name and through his work, amen. You are dismissed.